0: And it's not unusual to go and see a person who is on 10, 15, 20 drugs at any one time. But actually the interactions and the harms caused by that multiple use of drugs actually starts to go up once you go beyond three drugs. And nobody actually teaches or explains to you, once you add in more and more drugs, the, the potential to cause harm starts to go up exponentially.
1: Welcome back to Talk Evidence. This is a little special treat because we we love you so much. Uh, An extra one of our podcasts, and we might be doing more of these in the future. In this one, Helen and Carl have recently been away to talk about harms uh, at a retreat in Sicily. It's a hard life. Over to them.
2: Well, it was lovely scenery, Carl, but what a random collection of people we were. And one of the things that most struck me um, was that no one ever set out to be an expert in harms. And I wanted to ask you, because I didn't get a chance to ask you this at the conference, um, why did you get into harms and why did you organise this meeting?
0: Well, well, it's very interesting. If you think, go back, and when I teach medical students and we start on the journey of evidence-based medicine, in fact, one of the seminal sort of points in the journey, and I think about why, ebm came around was actually the cardiac arrhythmia suppression trial in the 1980s and 90s which started with the idea that if you have a heart attack people can get arrhythmias and can go into ventricular tachycardia, and very fast heart rates and that if you give an arrhythmia suppression you get rid of that electrical ex- excitation but people became cer- concerned that some people started to drop dead and the cast trials another acronym there, folks, Uh, using the anti-arrhythmics. Although it suppressed your electrical excitation, it significantly increased mortality. And therefore, there was a realization right at the outset that you needed to do trials to not only establish effectiveness, but you also have to do trials to understand that some treatments are harmful. And when you understand that basic premise, you realize that the use of evidence is to establish benefits, and harms. Now, one of the things is for me is about ten or fifteen years ago, uh, in my journey of evidence-based medicine, is the idea that you took evidence and you applied it in practice was becoming more difficult, and that was because the quality of the evidence was problematic. But often, there seemed to be problems that lots of evidence coming to to the sort of four was tarnished in some way, and there were problems with publication bias and uh, reporting bias sponsorship bias, that actually positive elements of the research uh, our publication system were coming forward. And lots of harms were being withheld. And therefore, I have spent 10 or 15 years in many multiple areas looking at the problems of harms. In medical devices, it's been particularly problematic. There's been problems with metal hips. There's been problems with surgical mesh. There's been problems with implants, prosthesis, so numerous problems have occurred. And then we've had drugs, and we've had significant numbers of drug problems. We had problems in in 2000. If you go back, you can look up Vioxx, and it's problems with uh, causing increased myocardial infarction. Rosiglitazone was another one, Uh, a lovely acronym, the DREAM trial, actually increased the rates of heart failure. And as we come on further and further, we've seen more problems, reporting bias in Tamiflu and the withholding of harms, the problems with statins in low-risk people, and the increase of muscle harms, and the problems is what's the true harm rate, and so much uncertainty that I think we have a crisis and in, in, in medicines and devices and the harms I cause that actually need a, a whole new way of thinking to get us out of this mess.
2: So is that your idea of the meeting?
0: Well, what it did is bring together a lot of disparate people who had very different viewpoints about what the issues were, what needed to be solved and how we should go about it. And, you know, um, it is in this modern environment, we spend so much time in front of our computers, so much time emailing each other, that I thought it was interesting to take people back and just literally lock in a room uh, about 30 people for three days and try to start to... him out these issues. And what's interesting is there was a lot of disagreement.
2: I think you should pause there.
0: Sorry, okay.
2: Pause, because I guess what's interesting is to contrast your journey into harms, which has been as a kind of cool bystander, could I say that, as a, as a researcher, as a clinician, as someone who has had the privilege, I guess, of very good teaching on evidence-based medicine. And to contrast your motivation for wanting to address this issue with some of the other really powerful stories, particularly that we heard um, from having members of the public and patients who have been affected by harms in the room at the meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was an extract that I want to put in um, from one member of the public who um, talked to us about her journey into harms following the death of her husband.
3: My name is Kim Witzack. I'm from the United States. I got involved in this uh, drug safety advocacy work due to a personal experience. My husband was given an antidepressant for insomnia. He was not depressed and had no mental health issues. And five weeks later, he took his own life. And since that, um, that event, I, it started me down this whole path of unwinding information and finding out the harms and knowledge that was known by some but not by all, including my doctor as well as me and my husband late husband. I, as the consumer representative on the FDA Psychopharmologic Drugs Advisory Committee, I think I sit there with a very interesting perspective because I come from not only um, the personal experience of the harm, but I have a Marketing advertising background. So I understand what happens once it gets approved at the FDA level on a small clinical trials and then goes in. in through the marketing and advertising goes into the real world. And so I always come with that filter of what is going to happen with this small approval, which is usually what it is at the FDA at the clinical trial level. What's going to happen once it's advertised and put into the real world? And I'm always coming from that perspective. And it's often interesting sitting on this panel because sometimes they look at me, why are you talking about marketing? This is about data, but ultimately at the end of the day, I'm concerned about what happens once these drugs get into the real world, um, because they have real consequences and a small risk to somebody is somebody's, ins. and if it happens to you or your loved one, it is a 100%. The reason
2: why I wanted to insert that in is because what you talk about, the evidence um, is is very persuasive but I think it is those human stories and what happens to people which can really engage the public and clinicians in wanting to understand more about harms. So
0: I, I think that's incredibly interesting and one of the things that's happened to, to our centre and the work we do is we get contacted by a considerable number of the public. Um, we can't deal with all of them and resource all of them. But there's been a review, the Independent Medicines and Medical Device Safety Review, chaired by Baroness Cumblidge, which is due to report sometime soon. It's probably early next year, but there have been three treatments in that that they've looked at. One is transvaginal surgical mesh. The second is uh, sodium valproate in pregnancy. And the third is a use, historical use of a test called Primidos, which is a hormone pregnancy test. And uh, we've ended up working, and I've contacted and been in contact with all of the group. And uh, at EBM Live this year, we had a patient panel with all three. And what's been interesting is, to me is that actually the public, when they get in these situations, really do have to take an evidence-based approach. And they're really hungry to understand the evidence and to critically appraise the evidence but also to look at the effects and look at what's wrong and when they get some of these skills they pretty become pretty vocal but tell us important issues that they say we can't believe for instance the quality of this evidence we can't believe that all of the long term complications beyond one year is missing for uh, mesh. We can't believe we knew about sodium valproate in the 80s and n- 90s and yet it took 20 years for the regulators to t- take notice of it and clinicians to some extent. And Primodos's is uh, a failure not only of uh, clinicians but also of the regulation, which is a huge problem.
2: Well, I think we should pause on that one because that was something which was totally new to me. I, th- I, th- I thought I knew what regulators did. Um, but I think the discussion at the conference, um, sorry, the discussion at the meeting was very interesting, and in my my naive clinician way i I really thought that the regulators were there to make sure that drugs worked well um and um, were not harmful or not dreadfully harmful based on the best evidence that was out there. And I think what became increasingly clear to me, at the meeting is that I misunderstood some of how they go about that. So they're not there to search out all of the evidence and to look at it uh, coolly. They're looking at a collection of selected evidence presented by a commercial company who are trying to get a market authorization to sell their drug. And I think that's such an alien concept I think for some clinicians and I can well understand for, m- for patients and members of the public to try and get their head around and to me that was that was one of the real um, take-home messages of the c- of the meeting no
0: I, I I thought I knew what regulators do and every now and again I'm, I'm surprised or slightly flummoxed by what somebody says and there was a very interesting uh, presentation by Lars Jorgensen and backed up by Tom Jefferson there about accessing evidence and the trial submitted to regulators and what they said is which was slightly disturbing for me was this point that regulators don't get to see all of the evidence So they actually don't have a systematic review in front of them. And regulators see different parts of the evidence depending on the timing and what's done in their country versus what's done in other countries. And to me, that's deeply disturbing. And they don't share it. And they don't share that information and it's not accessible. So this is deeply concerning because it means you can sort of cherry pick the evidence that goes in front of regulators. But we're talking about drugs here. We are not talking about devices because when it comes to devices, the sort of regulation of devices, what the regulators actually see is, to me, has become, uh, I I don't get surprised by it now, but they actually don't get to see clinical trial evidence. It's not like drugs where there are randomized trials in front of them. With devices, it's a whole different approach that has significant flaws in the prospect. And what's happened is is it's took years for us to realize that many devices have come on the market and are significantly defective and cause huge complications for patients and members of the public
2: and i guess coming down from the clouds away from the regulators in the system
0: well we were it, up at 700 meters in a, we in a reach day, so it was slightly in the clouds
2: the other thing which i thought was very interesting was reflecting on what it's like to be a patient who might be reporting harm or what it might be like to be a clinician who is receiving information from a patient who thinks, maybe thinks that they might've been harmed by a drug or a device, or maybe just has a symptom and they don't really understand um, why they have it. Um, And one of the things that the patients and members of the public who were there expressed is that they repeatedly hear from people that the public and patients don't feel believed when they go to clinicians um, and report their concerns and to me um, that felt worrying and I thought what what can we do as clinicians to be more open-minded how do you stop yourself from you know looking at what drug they're on looking at the known adverse effects and saying oh sorry it's not on there I'm not, I'm not sure I'm not sure that it is the drug and leaving the patient in a position where they feel that their um, symptoms are being minimised so I also talked to Rebecca Chandler who used to work um, as a drug regulator in Europe and she told me about the type of information that drug regulators have um, and what decision they're trying to make when they look at a package of content
4: So I am an American-trained infectious diseases physician who actually had a um, stint in working in drug regulation Mm -hmm. in the European Union system. So I was a safety assessor at the Swedish Medical Products Agency, but I've been at the Uppsala Monitoring Center for the last five years, working more in the arena of being a research physician. So... um, researching the best methodology to use these spontaneous
2: reports of suspected harms Mm. that patients have experienced. And there are two themes I want to talk to you about. One is a little bit, just very plainly, about what a regulator does and doesn't do. So
4: a drug regulator, their job is to assess a dossier, a, a packet, that a drug company has come to them with in which they have performed a number of studies for a drug and they are requesting market approval to sell this drug or to market this drug for a particular indication, for Mm -hmm. a particular illness. Um, And it's done, there's usually a number of studies that are done, but it's done on a limited patient population for a certain use that's been defined by the drug company. And, um, but it doesn't really come with an owner's manual about how best to use it. Mm-hmm. So we know that the drug on average works from the study. We know that the average response is, is a positive one. Mm-hmm. But once the drug goes out into the real world, we know that you know, it's not the average response won't be experienced by every
1: patient.
2: And Rebecca and I also talked about what happens after drugs get onto the market. Uh, So this, in terms of pharmacoepidemiology, are often called post-marketing studies. Um, And in particular, she told me about the importance of case reports. So doctors or patients reporting um, either via uh, systems into uh, regulators, um, or I guess in the medical literature as well, um, where they think that someone might be experiencing a side effect or uh, a harm from uh, a new drug and these case reports can be useful to pick up uh, signals of harm which might be very rare so trials might never have picked them up or they might happen sometime down the line after trials uh, have finished their follow-up.
0: Look I think this is an interesting, I've heard this many times that what happens is you have a procedure And then you come back and you report some issue like pain. And all I can answer here is some advice for primary care. My position is, until proven otherwise, if you've got an implanted device, it's a device. And you have to take it seriously. Because anybody will know, and the way I try and think about it, anybody will know what it's like if you've got a thorn stuck in your finger. Incredibly painful. And if you think of something like mesh, that actually the edges of the mesh can act like a thorn. Therefore... Until you take the fawn out, you've got, you're not going to get rid of the pain. So you have to take it incredibly serious, and this is what we should do in primary care, and be aware that if people have had any procedure, you take it really seriously. The second issue is then the system has to take it seriously. And what you need is specialist centres adequately staffed when you've reduced, introduced harm into the system. And we what do you mean by that specialist well, so for instance, you've spent ten years putting mesh into people, yeah. and now about ten percent are saying i've got serious complications, and I might want this mesh out. It is incredibly complicated and difficult to take them out, so you often need specialist surgeons, specialist uh facilities, you might need more than a general surgeon, you might need a a colorectal surgeon and a gynecologist there, you may need a multidisciplinary team, and that's what's happening. But you need to take it really seriously. You can't afford to then say you're going to go in a waiting list and, 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 and it's going to be, you're going to have to wait a year. So I think we have to acknowledge we do cause harm, and when we do it, we put everything right. And I think it's incredibly important that people understand that all treatments have benefits and harms. And I think we have to take minimisation of harm as incredibly important, but when, except we do cause harm, and when we do it, we have to get all over it to sort it out really efficiently and invest in the right centers to make sure people get treated with dignity and are seen efficiently and timely if they need a removal of an implant.
2: And you were part, Carl, I think, of a really interesting discussion about the scale of harm in the system in general.
0: Yeah, and I think there's, you know, you bring a disparate group of people together, and it's, this is interesting. You start to st- unpack some of the problems. So what, what there is, and I, I'm still battling this, and a number of people is, whether there's a need for a worldwide emergency, a sort of declaration of an emergency of the harms caused by medicines and medical devices. Now, why this came about is that actually we've already called, called for two emergencies, and they're quite interesting how they, they've come about. The first is antibiotic resistance. The, there's a global health emergency, and the World Health Organization has, has said by 2050 some 5 million people could die each year in Asia alone due to resistance to, due to antibiotic medicines. And this is largely because of overuse. The second uh, crisis is the opioid overdose crisis. And this is the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services have said every day more than 130 people in the U.S. die after overdosing on opioids. That's a huge number of people. Now, we could add into the fact that, you know, it's a third leading cause of preventable death is the harms caused by medicines. So once you start to go down this route, you realize, oh my gosh, we add in a lot of harm it's took us a long time to get here. The causes are complex and it's going to take us some time to get out of this mess. But something like the opioid dependence came around because we introduced things like pain ladders. We said we've got to maximize pain relief, we've got to get to people timely with pain relief and what's happened is we've got huge dependence going on and huge problems. And now we've got to spend our time getting people off opioids.
2: Well that linked to another interesting conversation that we heard. This um This messaging that can sometimes come with new drugs um, and excitement to get things onto the market for a particular uh, indication. And we heard uh, from Catherine Reaver, who's an investigative journalist uh, and researcher, and she uh, talked about an idea that she's been developing with others around the idea of ghost management. So you might have heard of ghost writing, the idea that um, you have, you pay somebody to jazz up your research to make it look and sound much better than it is but she was talking about this whole concept of ghost management Um, and rather than explain it I think I'll let Catherine tell you what it is in her own words.
5: Uh, I'm an investigative journalist. Uh, I'm specialized since 10 years in investigating and mapping uh, what we call health affairs, uh, meaning I'm investigating drugs, vaccines, that's uh, or other uh, screenings I did as well. Mm. Ghost management is a concept that was uh, elaborated by a uh, um, Canadian researchers called Sergio Sismondo and it was developed further by another Canadian researcher called Marc-André Gagnon. And I met Marc-André Gagnon two years ago at the Preventing uh, Overdiagnosis Conference, and he presented this concept for the first time. And I found it very interesting because he achieved to this, to, reuni- to reunite in one concept, phenomena we regularly observed so in the So what kind of things? Uh, collusions, dependency, corruption, uh, conflicts of interest, uh, the way science was shipping by some players, and so on and he developed a concept with seven uh level of what he called capture mm-hmm. meaning uh that's um uh, how uh corporate interests can shape the scientific knowledge the mm-hmm. way uh we define disease the way we define uh the risk the way we define the need for a cure um, and uh, he defined other levels of captures, like market captures, the way pharmaceutical industry can ensure some cross agreements to restrict access to markets. There was also a concept very enlightening about regulatory capture, the way uh, the pharmaceutical or the device industry can uh, influence the way the regulatory will work uh, to favorize their own interest.
0: Well, I think it comes down to this basic issue. what we're seeing is is the amount of benefit to play with is getting smaller
2: What do you mean by that? you mean that just the benefits of drugs are yeah. they're not big wins they're kind yes. of tweaking
0: yeah so what you think of something like cardiovascular disease is most of the benefits have come from the drugs already we've got so if you take somebody who is like myself might be at eight or nine percent absolute risk in the next 10 years you probably can reduce my risk by 20% relatively but the absolute benefits are small maybe half or one percent therefore to realize them benefits you have to have a drug that comes to the market with virtually no harms otherwise immediately what happens is if you introduce any harms it outweighs that, that small absolute benefits Therefore, there's a tendency of the approach is to put out treatments where you say it's all positive. And this is particularly so in this innovative world, particularly for techniques like surgical techniques where you sell it's easy, can be done as a day case procedure, you will benefit, not thinking of the long-term consequences and the potential for complications. And so people are only just waking up to the idea that actually before we let treatments out there, We do need to ask for harms. And I'll give you an example. The FDA said for MESH is that actually what we now need is a minimum three years Mm follow-up with reporting in full of the complication rates. And do you know what? It's incredibly difficult for any device to be able to provide the evidence for MESH. And so when you start to do this, you start to put in front of people that you'll have to slow down the innovation curve and leave many of these treatments in research for a bit longer. And we also have to keep surveilling and following up once treatments are on the market. So we need better post-marketing surveillance. Now, that brings me to this idea and some of this idea of an an emergency. If we accept there's an emergency, what are we going to do about the problems? So here's five ideas, and I'd be interested if people had their ideas because we're still formulating this as a group. Number one was raise public awareness of harms from medicines and devices. Number two was to strengthen understanding of the harm through better research and data. Most of what we do is about benefits. There's very little. There are no calls in research and say, oh, you'd like to study harms. It doesn't feel sexy, innovative. And Kath
2: made a very interesting suggestion there because she talked about how if you did trials of mesh, they might have appeared to have worked because people's incontinence was fixed. But actually, if you had asked them a different question like do you now feel better or can you go about your life as you would like to? The answer may have been no.
0: Correct. So it's this reporting bias that exists, and that's one of the significant problems. Also what comes of this is strength, strengthen our understanding, I've said through researcher data, the pre- and post-marketing assessment of harms. This is incredibly important, and people knew so little about it because all we see is at the point of regulation. But once a drug or device comes on the market we need far better understanding of what's happening. That's why we need mandatory registries of drugs and devices to understand the harms. And then we also need to think about advancing our knowledge and promoting high standards of practice for the safe use of medicines and devices. And I'll give you a good example of that. If you take the elderly... There's an exponential increase in the in the elderly with multimorbidity, but what's going with that is a rapid increase in the number of medicines used amongst the elderly, and it's not unusual to go and see a person who is on 10, 15, 20 drugs at any one time. But actually, the interactions and the harms caused by that multiple use of drugs actually starts to go up once you go beyond three drugs, and nobody actually teaches or explains to you. Once you add in more and more drugs, the, the potential to cause harm starts to go up exponentially.
2: I think that presentation also had a very interesting fact about the uncertainty with that as well. Wasn't there an interesting fact that um, once you're on more than two medications, we actually don't have data to even describe what the benefits and harms might be in people taking that? kind of quantity of medication
0: yeah and i think this is because what's happening many of the earlier trial and they think this is what's happening in the statins because statins has come to a very interesting area where that explains one of the issues about because it's all about harms now is that what's happened is it's been published about the benefits but if you then translate them benefits to lower risk populations in primary prevention it comes down to understanding the harms And what everybody goes on about is the muscle problems that are caused by using statins. So people have muscle aches, and then you stop exercising, the quality of life goes down. And what seemingly has happened is the trials have just not collected this data. And therefore, we have to almost go back to the beginning and say, if we haven't collected it, what should we do to be able to understand so we can truly inform what you're doing and reduce the uncertainty about the use of these treatments? To me the problem at the moment is there's so much uncertainty with many of the treatments because of this failure to understand harms that we do have a crisis, we do have significant problems and we have a failure of understanding of what we've done is mass medicalize many people and particularly you get older you are going to end up on more and more treatments.
2: Do you think there is a risk? that we have overwhelmed people with misery in this and despair but also do you think there's a risk that we have not that we did not sufficiently account for the counter argument to this which is that okay there are examples of harm but aren't there many more examples of benefit
0: well look it's not just I I guess then I guess the crisis of harms also comes not just by the overuse of medicines it's underuse of effective medicines mm -hmm. and for instance, it's a really interesting phenomenon that you often see. Like, for instance, many essential medicines are not available and not affordable in many parts of the world. So that's also a failure of of, of, of healthcare. And it's a direct harm by, caused by underuse. So I think this is a balance between underuse and overuse. And us starting to get right, when there's truly effective treatments then we should be using them and making sure they're available to the wider population around the world. And actually, the problem right now is there are so many treatments, so many medicines that we use, so many devices that come to the market, I think we've lost count of what are the truly effective interventions, and they're the ones that should be optimized and implemented in full. And I see this, I I call it the sort of the optimization gap. You'll often see where there's a very clear use of an intervention. For instance, you might see something like aspirin in heart attack, thrombolysis in heart attack. People who are secondary prevention at high risk really do benefit from many of these treatments. But what you find is there often there's a significant gap in terms of the population who receives that treatment. So we tend to do well up to about 60 70%. And then we fail to, to make sure we deliver all of these treatments as prescribed to the people who derive the most benefit. If we focused on that, I think we'd provide a better understanding of uh, medicine and improvements in what we did than trying to throw at people... Often technologies, drugs, devices that offer them minimal benefits and we don't understand what the benefits and harms are.
2: On the flip side, there was a lot of very positive energy in the room and a lot of will to do more. And one thing that I observed is that the increasing role of patients and the public in this process and in the discourse, doing some of the points that you've suggested, um, has the real potential to change things to change the system not just the system of research but to change the whole system well you know I'm
0: never gonna feel doom and gloom I'm just gonna look at this in a positive way I think there are steps where we're going in the right direction We are trying to solve things like publication bias. We are trying to make clinical study reports available to solve the problems of reporting bias. People get transparency around the world. We're talking about legislation that makes uh, competing interests and payments to doctors freely available so people can look at what's going on. So I think we're actually at the crest of a a wave here where we're going to see a sea change. What I hope happens here is people coming into research, coming into Academia start to take research integrity and harm seriously and see it's important something they may study. We know some of the things we're doing, like preventing overdiagnosis and too much medicine, has a significant following of people who are interested in this area. And I think it's okay to look at harms. And it's what we need is more people in board who think of this as an area that's really important to study because then we'll truly realize the benefits of medicine.
1: So that was Helen and Carl talking about creating an evidence base for harms. We'll be back very soon with a regular episode of Talk Evidence, but in the new year, we're planning more of the special episodes looking at particular problems in the world of medicine conflicts of interest, over all of those things that are in the EBM wheelhouse. If there's anything you're particularly interested in hearing us talk about, then do let me know. You can find out how to get in touch at bmj.com slash podcasts. Until then, keep tuned to the BMJ podcast because Christmas is coming and between now and the new year, we'll be bringing you some more quirky signs. So, If you haven't yet, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.